to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. We're going to look at the entire chapter this evening. 1 Kings chapter 9. This is the word of our God. And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built to put, to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, But go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses the house of the Lord, and the king's house. Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. That Solomon, King Solomon, then gave Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day, which literally means good for nothing. Then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer, lower Beth Haran, Baalath, Baal- 
and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah. All the storage cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots and cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants, were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely. From these Solomon raised forced labor, as it is to this day. But of the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers, because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. Others were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did not work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Gibber, which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet Seamen who knew the sea to work the, with the servants of Solomon. Then they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. So far in the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that we would have understanding, that we would uh, indeed uh, appreciate our great salvation in Christ, our glorious King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the whole chapter, even though I realize it feels like two different things. There's verses 1 through 9, which is obviously a cohesive preaching unit, and, and then there's 10 through 28, which feels like just a bunch of facts. But there, there, is, uh, two, there are two things that tie this chapter together. Um, one is that the word built appears, I believe it's eight times, although I, I didn't think to write it down, uh, throughout this section. So the verbiage continues throughout the whole chapter, which would hint at some form of unity. Uh, but more important than that is the fact that verses 1 and 10, the start of both sections reference the same moment in Israel. So verse 1, it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house. Those are the two events that mark verse 1. Verse 10, after 20 years, Solomon finished this project. So um, what we're we're seeing in these two verses is that uh, 20 years for Solomon to build his own house and the temple... And when that was done, then we see all these events that are taking place in this chapter. Uh, why repeat the after these things or the, or the 20-year marker in verse 10? I think it's to put the two things side by side. Both God appearing to Solomon and all these other things happened after the temple was built. 
And um, so we're going to glance at all of that tonight. I want to try to just bullet point verses 10 through 28 as briefly and succinctly as I can, making only a few comments, I hope, um, and then focus on the beginning. So first we see in verses 10 through 14, this relationship with Hiram. It's been a positive one before, right? It's the, the relationship that existed because Hiram had been a friend of David. And so Hiram, king of Tyre, has helped Solomon also in the book already. And here we're being reminded of that fact. Here Hiram uh, has supplied all these things that Solomon needed for the temple. And chapter 5, verse 1, we were told in, in uh, recompense for that, Solomon every year would send him food supplies. Hiram was the king of a tiny nation right on the, on the, um, the Mediterranean Sea, and they didn't really have a lot of farmland. And so he gave goods to Solomon. Solomon gave him provisions from the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is a strange account, though, because everywhere else their relationship seems good, and here we see tension. Uh, Solomon gives him these cities, and these 20 cities, if you were to look at the map, uh, you would discover that, uh, that this is right along the border of Tyre. So basically what Solomon is doing is letting Tyre expand its borders. Solomon has abundant wealth. They've reached the largest size that Israel has ever been or would ever be. And now he's letting his friend also have a larger expanded border. That's putting a positive spin on it. The negative would potentially be that Solomon is giving him worthless property. And that's how Hiram takes it. And, and so what do we do with that? Some commentators think that Solomon was uh, being cheap here and Hiram is right to be offended. And I, I'm not 100% convinced of that. I think sometimes in the historic books, we're, we're being left with the reality of relationships in a broken world. And we're not necessarily being told which of them was wrong. It, it, it's very easy to see Solomon doing something he thought was nice and it offended someone. And we do that. And it hurts because we thought we were doing them a favor. It's also very clear from our own sin that we can do things cheaply towards the people we ought to love and be expansive towards. And so rather than making a clear judgment call, I think the main thing we need to see here is that they are in a fallen world. Solomon is still in a fallen world. He may have failed his friend, but even if that's the case, Hiram sees that he needs to keep his relationship with Solomon. And that actually tells us something about the blessedness of Solomon's reign when God was blessing Solomon. That even with tension in the relationship, the world sees it needs to be Solomon's friend, even if you think he's offended you. And so Hiram sends him continued tribute, even after feeling offended the blessedness of Solomon's power and wealth and reign. Uh, then in verses 17 through 19, uh, we see a wilderness project. Where list, we see listed all these things that Solomon builds in the Negev, the desert and southern Judah. This is the area that would be between Judah and Egypt. It would be uh, uh, abutting the Philistine cities. 
it would be one of the ways that Edomites might come through to try to get into Judah from below. So there's this vast wilderness, and we see Solomon's wisdom here, I think, in putting military bases in the desert. It accomplishes a couple of things. One, he's not putting military bases in your neighborhood. You live in the land flowing with milk and honey, and you don't have to see chariots and tanks driving through all the time like that same land has seen ever since, right? That Solomon kept all that out in the desert, and you could enjoy the peace of the land flowing with milk and honey. But also, uh, he has these things ready if Egypt ever thinks to invade, if Edom ever thinks to invade, all the military outposts are out there in the desert waiting. And so there's a wisdom here on Solomon's part. We're also uh, shown the workforce, verses 15 and 16, uh, but especially verses 20 and 21. And with the workforce, uh, I, I think what we're being told is that Solomon concluded the conquest of Canaan. The conquest of Canaan had not been complete. Joshua did not take all the territory. They had not defeated every enemy. Saul didn't do that either. David didn't really do that either. Solomon does, but without bloodshed. He takes all of those people who in the conquest should have been destroyed and who have not yet become part of Israel. So some of them had married in, some of them through circumcision had become Israelites, uh, but those who had not integrated with Israel became a slave force. But there's something else we're being told that should be remembered later, and that is that no Israelite was part of the slave labor. Remember that when Solomon dies. And Israelites complained to Solomon's son. They claimed that they were little better than slaves. But it was only the Amorites, the, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who should have been put to death by Joshua's generation, who are actually part of that slave labor. No Israelite is part of it. Solomon, with this labor force, not only builds up the empire, but... He finishes the conquest. Uh, Verses 26 through 28, we see uh, the seaside trade. I don't think I have to say anything more about that. Uh, Solomon and Hiram, once again, are making great money together. And uh, the wealth of that and the rumors of that and the the myths about that have been abundant ever since uh, in terms of Solomon. We'll, We'll see it come up again in the next chapter. All of these things are showing Solomon's continued wisdom and his continued blessing. But why all of this blessing here? Even blessing in the tension of relationships with a friend. Why all this blessing? I think verse 25 hints at it. Verse 25 we read, Now three times a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. Three times a year. This speaks to Solomon's uh, relationship with God and his faithfulness in worship of God. That might be hard for us to see because we worship every Sunday. We take communion every month. 
how is three times a year a statement about, you know, when we see someone go to church three times a year, we don't tend to think faithful. Uh, but, but that's not what's being said here. Solomon surely went every Sabbath to the temple. What we're being told is that Solomon kept those feasts, the pilgrim feasts, which would have required him as an adult man and a leader in Israel to burn sacrifices before the Lord. He was faithful in that, which hints also that he was not only keeping himself uh, orthodox in practice, but he was keeping Israel orthodox in practice. And these feasts will not be held consistently by the majority of kings that come after Solomon. So, blessing, because Solomon keeps these feasts. That, that brings us back to 1 through 9, because that's in essence what God is saying. He says, insofar as you are faithful, not just outwardly to keep the feasts, but faithful to me, both in the feasts and in your heart, then there will be blessing. We see God come to Solomon in verses 1 through 9 a second time. Two things I want to draw your attention to this evening from verses 1 through 9. First is the uniqueness of Solomon speaking with God. What I mean by unique is, in 20 years, God only speaks directly to Solomon twice. Sometimes we can read the scriptures, and especially the Old Testament, and think that the normal practice of relationship with God for believers in the Old Testament was that God spoke to them every Saturday morning or Wednesday afternoon, right? This divine revelation that's personal conversation. But even Solomon, as far as we can see, in this entire 20-year period of his reign, only received this twice, not as a normal thing. How was his relationship established and kept with God the rest of the 20 years? Well, the same way yours is. The Old Testament version, of course. The word, he would hear the scroll read at worship. Solomon would be in the unique position to have a scroll of Deuteronomy himself. If he kept God's law, he would have written it out himself, probably all five books of the Pentateuch. So Solomon would read the word, and that's how he would hear God. He would hear it preached. That's how he, he would hear God. And then he would also see the word put into visual form in the sacraments of the tabernacle and temple. The ordinary means of grace. What should we expect in terms of relationship with God? The same thing. Solomon receives these two unique instances. And in both instances, it's not Solomon the man. It's Solomon the son of David. So it's even unique for him because of his status. That is, because he is the head of the covenant people. So that's the first thing we can draw from this. The, the uniqueness of God coming and speaking personally to someone. But the second thing, and I think this is the main thing, if we only take one thing away from this passage, I've boiled it down to two statements. And that is, royal faithfulness equals kingdom blessing. Or, royal unfaithfulness equals kingdom 
judgment. And I hope you catch what is being said by those statements. If the king is faithful, the nation is blessed. If the king is unfaithful, the nation is judged. It's not a general statement about all nations everywhere. Although Solomon in Proverbs gives us a little hint that righteous rulers lead to blessed nations. So there's a form of that that's true generally. But here there's this unique covenant perspective. You know what God's referencing here, don't you? It's the same thing he's referenced in every chapter of 1 Kings. 2 Samuel 7, again. God is talking about the same covenant that he made with David back then to Solomon here, but with this very strong emphasis. Solomon, if you keep the covenant, all Israel will be blessed. You personally lead to the blessing of all Israel. You personally failing or rejecting the covenant and all of Israel will suffer. There's something very important there. Now, that doesn't let all of Israel off, does it? Look at verse 9. When Israel is judged, people will see what God has done and what will be the reason given. Because they, that's plural now, they, Israel, the people, forsook the Lord their God and embraced other gods. So there is accountability, there is responsibility for every individual within the people of God to be faithful to God. And we will be judged accordingly. But there's also this beautiful reality that in verses 4 through 7, again and again, it is not in those verses the nation being faithful, but the king being faithful with result of blessing or the king being unfaithful with the result of curse. I don't think I need to spend a long time on this tonight. It's a very important point, and it's very important for your assurance. But I think I can briefly make the point and leave you to think about it more. This point has to do with a a shadow to point to us something greater in Christ, eternal security. Your eternal security is not dependent upon your faithfulness. Your security in this life and the next is dependent on Christ's faithfulness. And unlike Solomon or Josiah or Hezekiah or any one of the many failures worse than them, Christ absolutely faithfully kept the promise and all righteousness so that if you are in him and he is the king over your heart and your life, then you are eternally secure. Just like verse 9 here, the New Testament does warn us about apostasy. It does warn us about not taking our walk seriously as if Christ having accomplished all righteousness for us means we can uh, do whatever we want and we're uh, not to consider our faithful walk. Uh, Let me read some of the parts about apostasy 
in Hebrews uh, just briefly. In Hebrews, uh, just the beginning of chapter 2, we read, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews, we read, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You could also read... uh, Chapter 6 of Hebrews, 6, 1 through 8, or chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. But let me direct you to just one more passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29, because I think this is important for seeing how the, the call to not be apostate and the declaration that you are eternally secure, not based on yourself, but on Christ really comes together. Hebrews 12, 25, we read, see that you do not refuse him who speaks for if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. You can keep reading from there. But I think that's a very important key text to understanding how 1 Kings 9 is trying to direct us about our own responsibility and our eternal security, as well as Hebrews talking about apostasy and eternal security. Remember that each of these moments in Hebrews about apostasy comes in a contrast. There was this leader who failed, and so did the people. But you shouldn't. But what else is the contrast? There was the leader who failed. But look at Christ. Again and again, chapter 2, chapter 3, all of these chapters. But look at Christ for your hope. And don't be apostate like them. But look, uh, or here again, especially Hebrews 12.25, how do we, in fleeing from apostasy or refusing to apostatize, how is it that we remain faithful? See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Who is he who speaks? Hebrews 1, verse 1, or rather verse 2, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. He's the king. We have here in Hebrews and in 1 Kings 9, the same point being driven home. Do not ignore him who speaks. Walk worthy of the gospel. But what does walking worthy of the gospel mean? Perfection in your life? No, actually, it means his righteousness as your security. 
faith in him that will not swerve or turn away from Christ. How is apostasy gauged? By a lack of keeping the law? No, apostasy is gauged by turning away from the faith which has been handed down to us. Turning our backs on the King and Savior whom we once professed. And that's what we're being shown in the promise to Solomon in chapter 9. It's what we're being shown in Hebrews. We need to look to our King who in all ways kept faithfulness and in Him we will reach that eternal rest. Something better than boats and buildings and places to store chariots. But the land where only righteousness will dwell. Let's pray.